Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you would like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. There's a disclaimer before I begin this sermon. I am included in the we and the you. For the past month, God has been convicting me in many ways concerning a lot of what I'm going to say today. And when I'm preaching to you, even when I'm meddling, it's directed right back to me. But before we jump into our gospel lesson this morning, I want us to have a discussion. I have some questions for us to consider about the patterns and the habits that kind of make up our life. And in particular, what these patterns and habits have to say about our everyday hopes and our everyday concerns, whether they are trivial or ultimate. So first, I want you to raise your hand if you have any one or more of these devices. All right, now keep your hand up if you regularly use one or more of these devices for these purposes. Weather reports and forecasts. All right, you put your hands down. Have you ever actually taken the time to reflect on our daily observance of weather reports or our daily and weekly reliance on forecasts actually have a major influence on your actual daily practices, your daily habits and patterns? I mean, think about it. Many of us, including myself, have altered daily, weekly, even holiday plans due to weather forecasts and reports. Rather than going hiking with the kids, you quickly adapted and you took them to the science museum, the library, or maybe the children's museum to avoid the rain, the sleet, and the snow. Instead of going to the beach, you canceled accommodations and you quickly made others in the mountains. Instead of wearing those sandals and that super cute dress you had planned to wear the other day, you heard the rain outside and you decided instead to wear jeans, boots, and a really, really, really oversized sweater. For many of us, we have had to change our dress, schedules, our very courses of life for a day, a week, or maybe even more due to the changes in weather. And though we may have done so reluctantly, wishing that it had not rained or that that, that snow would just melt, we still made those changes, did we not? And we did so intentionally without much distress. And often, if not always, we were very glad we made those changes. Think about it. In so many ways, we are fascinated with weather reports and forecasts. And our fascination is expressed in many, many, many ways, from anxiety and concern to hope and relief. Now, here's the interesting thing about weather reports. Even though radar and satellite technology has improved forecasting weather over the years, we all know deep down that foretelling the future is still not an entirely reliable affair. Nevertheless, predicting the weather gives us some comforting illusion that though we may not be able to rebuke the wind and the waves like Jesus, we may nevertheless have some control over nature For the old adage, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Now, because our daily observance of weather reports and forecasts have a major influence on our actual lives, maybe even more than our daily prayers and devotions, 
I believe they say a lot about who we are. I actually believe they say a lot about actually what concerns us. And often, that which concerns us most says a lot about where we look for salvation. So the question I put before us today is this, where do I look for salvation? At the beginning of this service, you heard that today is a significant day in the life of the church. According to tradition, it's a day that ought to be filled with expectant praise, with hope and rejoicing as we join our voices with the communion of saints, Mary and Joseph, Simeon and Anna, and we sing the song of Simeon, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel." Yet, I fear that there are so many other competing hopes and expectations that have captured your hearts and your minds today that will eventually lead you and I into songs of rejoicing that will look and sound very foreign and different to the praise we see in Luke's gospel. And for many of us, these competing hopes, these actual expectations will eventually give rise to great lamentation when your said team doesn't deliver before the rooster crows before noon. Now, I am aware that everyone here this morning is not an NFL, Super Bowl sports fan, Super Bowl watcher. Instead, you may have already placed your hope in the annual February 2nd Groundhog Day American Secular Weather Prophecies, (laughs) hoping for some deliverance, some salvation from what is expected to be a harsh winter, which, by the way, our expectations based on the actions of a large rodent named Puxatwani Phil... Now. Whether it's Groundhog Day forecasts, Super Bowl Sunday hopes, or something in or someone else, we have to admit we are people who are prone to look for respite. We're people prone to look for deliverance and salvation in so many things foreign to where salvation truly dwells in Jesus Christ. We are people who constantly set our eyes, our hearts, our souls, even our inner thoughts on a salvation of our own making, a false salvation that has no basis for hope, expectation, or rejoicing, really. So where do you look for salvation? Where do you actually place your hope? Where do you place your hope Day to day, week to week, month to month. In our text this morning, Mary and Joseph, they bring their infant to the temple. And they do so to be dedicated. And when they do, they encounter two really awesome elderly people, Simeon and Anna. Now, personally, every time I read this narrative, I think of a lady named Marilyn Tebow. Marilyn was an older woman who was a founding member of this church. 
who unexpectedly passed away a few years ago. Anna reminds me of Marilyn, an elderly widow before her passing, who regularly showed up to church to pray for you and me, whose life was and still can be characterized as a woman of faithful, devo- of faithful devotion to prayer and to praise. Because of God's salvation in her life, Marilyn was a woman of hope like Anna. She was a woman who had expected God to be God, and she never, ever doubted God's faithfulness. It was always evident in her prayers for you and for me, for us, and her posture toward many of us, if not all of us, that she knew where true salvation dwelled in Jesus Christ. And this was the reason for her praying, her expectation, and her rejoicing. Like Marilyn, both Simeon and Anna were expectant. They were hopeful. They too knew that salvation was of God and from God. They were looking for salvation. Even in the midst of an occupied Roman-controlled empire led by this oppressive bully named Caesar, they believed that God was and is faithful to God's promises. They trusted in God because they had experienced God's faithful to them in so many ways. It was because of God's faithfulness they were attentive to the presence of God in the story of their own lives as well as the story of God in others' lives. In obedience to God, they kept their eyes open for God's salvation. So on the day God actually shows up in his temple, the very place people believed God dwelled, Simeon and Anna are already there. They are already waiting and expecting for God to show up. And when God does show up, Simeon rejoices, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you, Lord, have prepared for me and in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And we read in verse 38 that at that moment, Anna came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, in the same way Mary's song, Jesus' mother's song in Luke 1, and Gabriel the angel's announcement to the shepherds in the beginning of Luke 2, is clear that the Messiah has come and God has done great things for Israel, Simeon and Anna's response about Jesus point to what is already the case. Salvation has come. God in flesh in the form of an infant boy, Jesus, has come. God's salvation. Jesus is God's salvation. For Simeon and Anna, salvation was not deliverance from Herod the Great or Caesar, It wasn't the end of their aging bodies or the resurrection of Anna's spouse who had passed away years prior. In our passage this morning, salvation was a vulnerable vulnerable infant boy who had a name, and his name was Jesus, the Lord's Messiah. 
Now, I actually wonder what this might mean for us today. Do we, like Simeon and Anna, recognize God's salvation in Jesus? Or do we, like those of old, expect God's salvation to come in the form we believe is best for our own lives? A form of deliverance that doesn't look like Jesus at all. A salvation that is full of presumption that is spiritually bankrupt and biblically unwarranted. Altogether lacking Jesus. Now I am aware that the New Testament speaks of salvation in many ways. But our gospel passage this morning in Luke draws our attention to the one in whom salvation dwells. And through whom God accomplishes God's saving purposes. Jesus is God's salvation. Because of Jesus, Simeon and Anna can now sing along with Mary. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy, holy, holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts, their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servants, Israel, in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. In just a few verses, verses 25 through 27 in Luke 2, we catch a glimpse of Simeon and Anna's role under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They represent faithfulness and the best of expectant Israel. They are witnessing to the central place Jesus already occupies in God's redemptive plan. To say it another way is this. In Jesus, Simeon recognized the consolation of Israel, that he was the light for the revelation to the Gentiles. And Simeon praised God for God's faithfulness, In Jesus, Simeon saw God's salvation. And this encounter, the passage says, enabled him to die in peace. What would enable you to die in peace today? In Jesus, Anna recognized the advent of God's redemption in the world, and she praised God for God's faithfulness. In Jesus, Anna saw God's salvation. And this encounter gave Anna, an elderly widow who had experienced significant loss, life, and even more reason to share the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Jesus, Simeon and Anna saw and beheld God's salvation. Jesus is God's salvation. Amen? Now, I've said a lot about Simeon and Anna, but I don't want you to miss the point because they're pointing to Jesus. 
As holy, righteous, and devout as they are, Simeon and Anna's role in Luke's story is to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the reason for their hope. Jesus is the reason for their praise. Yes, they're part of the larger story, but they're pointing to the foreground where Jesus, who remains silent through it all, is the focus. In fact, all words, all deeds are oriented toward Jesus. The focus is Jesus. Don't miss it. Even Mary's purification becomes Jesus' presentation in verses 22 through 24. Simeon's words to Mary concern Jesus. Mary and Joseph are where they are because of Jesus. Simeon's song concerns Jesus. Anna's response concerns Jesus. Even Jesus is who he is. He's where he is and how he is because he is the Messiah of the Lord. He is Jesus, God's salvation. Jesus is God's salvation. This entire account is about Jesus Christ. Every figure, every hope, all expectations, every word, all praise, all actions are centered on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God's salvation. So the question I put before us this morning is, where do I look for salvation? Now let's take a break. Think about all the ideas, all the somethings and someones in which we constantly place our hope. Maybe for you this is relationships. Maybe romance or the idea of romance, maybe marriage or the idea of marriage, maybe it's having a child or a family, maybe it's business success, retirement, pensions, savings, and investments, possibly AB honor roll or 100 to 1,000 likes, maybe an unweighted 4.0 GPA, or maybe just the false hope and the lie that to be human is not to end up with dementia, or whatever you fear. Now, if you actually think you don't actually place your hope in those things, then I want to invite you to examine your lives. These are just some examples. Where are you spending your money, time, and energy on? How much mortgage and consumer debt have you accrued? And how does that compare to the amount you give in tithes and offerings to this church or another church or to support those in need within our church or the wider community? For some of us, it's our schedules. We're completely overcommitted to so many things that we don't have time to serve at church, to participate in a community group, to attend a church farm work day. You see, example after example I can give because I know if your life is anything like mine, then we have been placing our hope in so many things. Sure, some are good, even noble. And yes, some ought to be pursued. But without honest examination, they will continue to kill our joy and blind us to seeing the salvation that Simeon and Anna saw in the temple the day Jesus shows up. So, for many of us, including myself, 
when asked, where do I look for salvation, we know how to respond. We know what to say. But if we're to look at our actual lives, our marriages, and our parenting, our spending, and our investing, our consumption habits, our work ethic, our prayer lives, even our inner thoughts, would we expect others to see Jesus at the center as the main impulse that drives these areas of our lives? If you are a Christian, then you ought to be known for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Others should see Jesus in you. Others should see Jesus as the center of your life. For God has called you out of the world and he has made you a part of the church, his very body, to bear witness to Jesus as God's salvation to this world. And so part of the salvation that many of us, if not all of us, need to experience today is salvation from our low expectations for God to be God. We need salvation from thoughts in our inner hearts. We need salvation from our own attempts to save ourselves. We need salvation from the false hopes we possessed and are possessed of or by. We need salvation from the cultural lie that says that good people go to heaven when they die. We need salvation from the lie that says the central goal of your life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. You need salvation from the idea that being in a relationship or a marriage will save you from sin and loneliness. Salvation from the false hope that anyone other than Jesus Christ will fully satisfy you. We need salvation. We need salvation from the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. That attempt to better understand ourselves so that we can become more self-aware. Because you know what defines us as Christians most profoundly is not that you have come to know yourself, but that you are known by God. Jesus, higher and deeper than knowing ourselves, is being known by God. We need salvation from our own success. You're probably wondering why these things. Because many of us here today live good moral lives. We're in healthy relationships. We have decent jobs. We're successful in school. And daily we are prone to miss Jesus through it all. But what if Jesus is not only missed? What if Jesus is missed because we are so overwhelmed and overcommitted to the gifts of the giver that we have exchanged the giver for the gifts of life? In other words, we've exchanged the giver of life and salvation for the gifts in life that will never save you or I. And this is just a side note. But if you look at the text, there's only two people who recognized Jesus in the temple that day. It's not unlikely that there were many, many, many other people there working out their salvation with fear and trembling, expecting God to show up, but missed him when he showed up. So in all of these things, moral lives, regular church attendance, healthy relationships, self-awareness, success, salvation can be entirely lacking. But it is very important to note, in none of them does salvation dwell. 
They may be part of the benefits of salvation that God gives us, but salvation dwells in one person, Jesus Christ. And the reason we are prone to seek salvation in all these other things and elsewhere is that we think too little or we don't think enough or at all about God's salvation. And when God shows up, for us it's often unexpected. But for Simeon and Anna, who Luke says were faithful and righteous, God showing up is actually expected. Now this is not to say that God does not show up in unexpected places. God surely does. In fact, the Bible provides many examples of God showing up in unexpected places. You may remember Abraham. God shows up in his old age. What about Daniel? God shows up in the lion's den. Or Hosea, God shows up in one of the most unfaithful spouses in all literature. For King David, God shows up in the death of a son. For Jonathan Munakazi, God shows up in the death of a grandson and a grandson. For Timothy, God shows up in his youthful years. Even this random guy in the middle of nowhere in the Bible, Uzziah, God shows up, yes, even in a disease. When choosing a people, he came to the smallest. When choosing a king, he came to the youngest. When choosing disciples, he came to the least qualified. And when choosing an evangelist to the world, he chose a Jewish zealot who murdered his own. God shows up in unexpected places. And for this reason, we should be a people who expect the unexpected when it comes to God. Although God may show up in unexpected ways, you should be a people that remain expectant and hopeful that God will show up. And when he does, we rejoice that salvation is near and has come. This morning, God's salvation has already come. Jesus Christ is ever-present, directing us away from ourselves and our attempts to find salvation outside of Jesus. God is reminding us in and through his word that salvation has come unto us. Sisters and brothers, members, visitors, today salvation is on offer to all those who truly believe and confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Amen.